All right. Well, welcome to part two of a series that we're doing on covenants. I've been calling it Covenants Telling the Greater Story, and today is part two. It's entitled called The Heart of God. And earlier before the service, a group of us were praying for the service, and Marcy was praying about the message, and she referred to covenants as God's love story. And I thought, that's a beautiful little summary. What is a covenant? It's really God's love story to us, what he wants to do in our life and what he had sent Jesus to do in our life. So I'm, I'm excited to continue the series on covenants because I think they really help us to understand the Bible a little bit better. They help us understand God's heart a little bit better. So last week and this week and the next few weeks, we're going to just continue to talk about covenants and especially, you know, what is a covenant and why they are important and what they mean to us and how we relate to a covenant but also how covenants help us to understand God's story for our life as well as help us to tell our story. I think sometimes when we read through the Bible, sometimes you kind of wonder how it all fits together. You know, you start in Genesis, and then you have a flood, and then you have Abraham, and then you have Israel, and then you have David, and you have all these wars, and sometimes you wonder, how does this all relate? What does one of these stories have to do with the next story or the next story? And I think sometimes we read the Bible and you kind of maybe get a little bit confused on how does this all work together? And I think we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, why don't, you, why don't we just read the New Testament? That Old Testament sometimes a little hard for me to figure out, so let's just stick with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and let's just figure out what Jesus is all about. Maybe even pare down the four Gospels to just one. Could I have just one book? And maybe it'd be a little bit easier for me to understand this whole thing about Jesus and Christianity because... Sometimes it's a little tricky to read the Old Testament. And I think all of us do remember what it was like growing up in school. And the teacher would be teaching something that you totally did not understand. But fortunately, there's always that one brave kid in class that would raise their hand and say, will this be on the test? <laughs> kind of like, I really don't know what you're talking about. I really don't get it. And as long as this is on the test, I'll just zone through. And I think we do that sometime in the Old Testament. Because you're reading those genealogies, you're reading some of the Old Testament law, and it's easy to say, I don't get it, and you zone out. And that's why I love the topic of covenants. That's why I like talking about covenants, because I think they help us to understand the Old Testament in a little deeper way. I think they help us to see the Old Testament as these little stories that are strung together, because in that, you can see God's heart for humanity and what God wants to do in this world. So for the sake of this series, I think it's important to look at covenants to say the three main things covenants do. Now, there's a whole lot more things that covenants do, but I just want to talk about three things today and bear it down to maybe three things to kind of help us to maybe understand it a little bit better. See, the first thing that covenants do is they built the framework for us to understand the Bible. The second thing that they do is they build a, us a bridge to get to where God wants us to be. And the third things that covenants do is they help us to understand the heart of God. So the first thing is covenants are like a frame. Like, you know, when you build a house, you have that nice foundation there, and then you're going to build that frame structure on a house. Because a house isn't going to stand up if you don't have a frame. You've got to attach your drywall to something. You've got to attach your exterior to something. You need a frame. And covenants kind of do that in the Bible. They help build this framework that you help to understand what God is doing throughout Scripture and how God is building Scripture, which is a story of redemption, or as Marcy said, it's a love story. That framework helps us see the unfolding of God's love story for us. But also covenants are like a bridge because they get us to where God wants us to be. 
We all know our life starts in one situation, and God says, no, you need to be over here. And often God does that through a covenant. We saw he did that with, he did that with Noah, and he did it with David. He did it with Abraham. God comes in and says, this is what I want to do in your life, so this is my word I'm going to give to you to build the bridge to get you to where you need to be. Today we're going to talk a lot about Noah, and I love the story about Noah and the ark because in the midst of this story of Noah and the ark and the flood really is the heart of God that you see God's heart is always for restoration. It's always for wholeness. It's always to build a frame, and it's always to build a bridge. So we want to talk a lot today about the heart of God. See, when covenant started in the Old Testament, a covenant was a relationship that would be between two people. And a covenant's different than a contract, and the, the difference is a covenant lasts forever. And so often what kings would do in the Old Testament culture is that they would make a covenant with their people. The king would come to the people and say, I am the king, this is what I have done, and this is what I'm going to do for you, and in response, I want your commitment, and then I'm going to tell you the blessings that you're going to get if you enter this relationship with me, and if you do not fulfill your part of the covenant, these are the consequences you're going to have. So that's kind of goes on in the Old Testament cultures with king, but what God does when he comes on stage, he creates a covenant as well. And people in that Old Testament culture, they would understand covenants because that's part of culture. But God comes in the Old Testament. We're strictly talking Old Testament today. And God would come on scene and he would say, I am the God and I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is all the benefits that you will receive if you follow me. And if you don't follow me, these are some of the consequences that you're going to have to deal with in your life. So it's a pretty good deal if you follow what God has called you to do. But the hard thing happens is if you don't keep your side of the covenant, then you've got to deal with consequences. So what God does in the Old Testament, he goes to people and says, okay, this is my promise to you. This is what I want to do for you. I'll make a promise. In return, I want you to make a commitment. So now the deal with a covenant is it's going to last forever. Now if you have a contract... If a contract between two people, we figure out if one person doesn't fulfill their side of the agreement, then we have this whole uh, clause in a contract, how to dissolve the contract. See, that's the thing with a covenant, is that it goes on forever. God's going to keep his word forever. So then the, we're wondering, how are we going to keep our side of the deal? And see, what we're going to see throughout the Old Testament as that humankind didn't do very part in fulfilling their side of the commitment. So we're going to see, what is God going to do about that? What is God going to do? Because actually covenants would kind of look like not a very good deal at face value because if a humankind doesn't keep their end of the deal, they're going to have to live the rest of their life with the negative consequences of a covenant. Well, the heart of God is always restoration. So what is God going to do if people in the Old Testament cannot keep their side of the covenant? And that's why covenants build a bridge. Because not only does God say what he's going to do, but he says, I'm going to help you to fulfill your part of the covenant. I'm going to help you to fulfill your commitment to me. And that's why at the center of a covenant with God is always the heart of God, but it's always the compassion of God. See, a covenant is an opportunity for us to relax and to recognize that God is a faithful God and that he's going to fulfill both sides of that covenant for us because he knows we don't have the ability to do what he's called us to be committed to. 
See, covenants give us the realization that God loves us the way we are. And God is not expecting us to become righteous on our own. That God's not expecting us to become righteous on our own, to prove to him how good we are, and then he will extend his hand and make a covenant. See, that's the beauty of covenant, that God comes to each of us in our situation, understanding the condition of our heart, understanding the condition of our behavior, understanding the condition of our past, understanding the conditions of our mistakes, and saying to us, I'm going to extend a covenant with you because I love you. And I'm going to extend a covenant to you because I have a really good plan for your life. And without me, that's not going to happen. So covenant is all about God's compassion. Covenants are all about God's ability. It's not about our inability or the condition of our heart, but it's about God's ability. See, covenant is not about us giving up. It's about us letting go and trusting in God that he's going to be faithful to do what he's going to do. It's about God's love and his consistent pursuit of humanity. We even saw that in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He went and he looked for Adam and Eve. He didn't wipe them out. He said, where are you? That's why it's extremely important for us to understand covenants and to really study covenants and to really get an understanding of what they are because it makes up so much of the Bible. But see, covenants also tell us how God enters into our story, how God enters into our life situation. And sometimes he has to rewrite some parts of our life to fit it back into the plan that he has for us. But sometimes God actually, it seems like he's writing new chapters in our life because we kind of got off track a little bit more, and he's going to write us back into the plans he has for us. See, covenant is all about how God can take a weak person, a broken person, a fragile person, a person that's prone to wander and a person that's prone to sin, and say, you're going to get on track with the plan that I have for your life. See, covenant is a bridge to understanding what really is true joy and happiness. I think what covenants help us to understand, too, is helps us understand how our identity in Christ actually becomes a reality. Covenants take us from saying, you know what? It's not about what I can do. It's about what God can do for me. It's that peaceful realization that it's not about me trying harder and harder and harder, but recognizing that God has made provision for me to rest in the peace that he's going to take care of my life. But one of the big questions that we have when we read the Bible and we talk about covenants and we talk about our life is why is it taking so long? Sometimes we wonder, why does it take so long to sometimes see the plan of God in my life happen? Or sometimes we wonder, why does it seem like the story of the restoration in my life seems to kind of drag on and on and on and on? I think sometimes we wonder with that, and we get frustrated with that. I don't think too often we complain that, oh, God moves so fast. Usually our comment is, what took him so long? Why did it take God so long? Because I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I've been praying. And you get to the point, you think, is he ever going to do anything? And I think we all struggle with that at time to time, thinking, God, what is taking so long? And I wish I could answer that question and say, all right, I'll tell you the two reasons why sometimes it takes so long. If I could, I'd write a really good book and sell a lot of books. I don't have all the answers, and I wish I did, but I think I have a little bit of a glimpse into maybe what is part of the answer. 
Maybe it's not a complete answer, but maybe it'll help us have a little bit more understanding of why does it sometimes seem to take so long? I mean, why didn't Adam and Eve sin? And then Jesus shows up in the next chapter. Instead, we got two, 3,000 years from the time of Adam and Eve to Jesus. Why did we have to have such a big period of waiting? I mean, God could have sent Jesus earlier. Why didn't he do that? And then we would have that short Bible. It won't take that long. But instead, when you look at the Old Testament, when you go from the garden to Noah to David and you see all that happens, you see years and years of this cycle of disobedience. You see God reaching out to his people, giving them what they need, and then you see people come into disobedience. And then they have to live with consequences. And then people move into repentance. And then people find God's mercy and they find his grace and they start living a life of obedience. And then often you would see the cycle begin again in the Old Testament with disobedience. That would lead to repentance and then it would show God's mercy. And over and over again we see this repetitive cycle. And we kind of wonder why. Why, God, didn't you just speed all that up? And I think Paul gives us a little bit of an insight in the book of Romans. In Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, Paul's quoting several passages from the Old Testament. He's quoting a lot of Psalms. So when I read this passage, you probably say, hey, that sounds a little familiar. That's because it's kind of in other parts of the Bible. So listen to what Paul says. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. And that's pretty much Paul's uh, description of the human race. It's not that good. And Paul goes on for several more verses, but I think we all kind of catch on quickly that no one is righteous, not even one. And Paul's saying this is the problem with the human race. Everybody's a sinner. No one is righteous. So that's how Paul describes the human race. But then Paul's going to go on in verse 19 through 20. And he's going to give us some big insight into why things take so long. It's a little bit of an answer that Paul gives us. Paul says, obviously, the law, he's referring to all the Old Testament rules that people had to live by and the standard of living that people had to live by in the Old Testament. Paul says, obviously, the Old Testament law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, look, the Old Testament law shows us a couple things. Number one, it shows us what God required of the human race. It shows us the standard of living that God required of people to, to, to obey. Paul says that's number one, what the Old Testament does. shows us the standard of living. And number two, it shows us that nobody was able to keep the law. That there was no person that walked on this earth who could keep the Old Testament law, the Old Testament commandments. No one could do it. So no one can ever say, I did it on my own. Nobody could brag and say, but look at me. I was able to live a righteous life on our own. No one could do it. For thousands of years in the Old Testament, people proved over and over again that they could not live a righteous life on their own. That no one could do it. And I think sometimes the reason things take a long time is because sometimes it takes a while to prove to a person that you can't do it on your own. Sometimes it takes a while to prove to a person that the only way 
that you can live a righteous life is by the grace and mercy of God. That you are going to need God in your life to give you grace and to give you mercy because you can't do it on your own. And the Old Testament is a long thousand-year story to show that no human being, no matter how much time they were given, no matter how many opportunities they were given, nobody could live a righteous life on their own. And that's all set up to show us what the good news of the gospel really is. See, last week we talked about Genesis 1 where God created Adam and Eve. And we talked about the fact that God put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden and he showed them what a wonderful life that you can have if you live by his rules and his commandments. God showed us what a peaceful life that you could have. And God said, okay, you get to live in this beautiful garden. The temperature's perfect. The animals are obedient to you. There's no war. There's no rumors of war. Everything is perfect. But she's got two little things. Don't eat of this one tree. One tree, the tree of life, eat from that tree and you're going to live forever. The other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away from that tree. We all know what Adam and Eve did. They ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And I think a lot of us look at that Old Testament story of Adam and Eve and we think, why did they sin? Why were two people who grew up in a perfect and a beautiful garden that's also referred to as paradise, they had the perfect father, they walked with God during the day, why would they sin? They weren't raised by bad parents. They weren't bullied in school. They had everything they needed and they were created in perfection. They were created in the image of God and yet they sinned. And I think it's sometimes hard for us to figure out why did they sin? Because a lot of times I think we think, look, if I had a life where if I had the perfect job or my credit cards were paid off or if this family would leave me alone or this person won't bother me or if I had this position or if I got this new car, if I had all of these things, then I would live a really good life and I won't sin anymore. But you see, from Adam and Eve, they had everything that they could desire or want, but yet they sinned. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us sometimes because we think, if I had everything I need, I won't have any desire to sin. But I think what we see from the Garden of Eden is a really strong point. As long as there's an enemy around, we're prone to sin. There was an enemy in that garden. See, even though the garden was paradise, even though the garden was beautiful and Adam and Eve were created in God's image, Adam and Eve still were not God. Adam and Eve still were not divine. They were still human. And there was an enemy in that garden. And because of Adam and Eve were not God, they didn't have the ability to resist the enemy. See, in Genesis 5, 3, verse 15, after God tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin, he says to them, but Jesus Christ is going to come, and he's going to defeat your enemy. See, the solution to Adam and Eve's problem was Jesus Christ, and while they were in the garden, they didn't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's how sin entered the world. Because even though Adam and Eve had everything that they could desire, everything they could want, there were still borders in the garden. And what we as humans have a tendency to do is wander to the borders. We wander to the edge and wonder, maybe what's over there is really what I need in my life. 
See, Adam and Eve have had everything they wanted, but yet there was part of them that thought, is God holding out on me? Why would he say I can't eat of that tree? Is God holding out on me? Maybe there's something better on that tree because the enemy, he teased them with that. If you eat from that tree, you're going to have a better life. And I think sometimes that happens in our life. We think, but did God really say that? Did God really put that border there? Well, the only way I'm going to know if that's wrong is if I try it. So a lot of times we have a tendency to cross the border of the garden that God called us to live in, and we try something that we shouldn't. And suddenly we cross that border, and we recognize we're going to need a bridge to get back to God's plan for our life. And so God comes in the garden, and what does he do to Adam and Eve after they sin? He gives them a promise. He gives them that promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, and says, but Jesus is going to come, and he's going to strike down the enemy. And that's the beauty of God's promises, that God uses them over and over and over to get us from the boundary that we cross to get us back into the good garden that he has for us. God is always using boundaries and always using his grace and always using covenants to get us back into the plan that he has for our life. That's why covenants are so important because they show us over and over again that God's heart is not for destruction, but his heart is for restoration. No matter how many times we cross that border, God's always there with a promise to say, I'm going to get you back in because God wants us in the garden. God wants us in the garden with that relationship with him. God would do anything to get us into a relationship with him. And that's where the promise of Jesus Christ came in. So Adam and Eve show us that we need Jesus. That we need somebody to destroy our enemy for us. So the next big covenant that God makes is with Noah. And through Noah, God shows us that what we are going to need to do in our life is we're going to need to surrender. That we need to surrender in, in order to get grace and mercy in our life. See, if you want your enemy to be destroyed, you're going to have to surrender to God because God's the one who's only going to be able to defeat your enemy. Adam and Eve show they couldn't defeat Satan. Even everything was going perfect in their life. They did not have the ability to do it on their own, but they needed Jesus to come in their life. And see, we all need Jesus to defeat our enemy for us. But sometimes that's hard because we think, i got to fight my enemy. But Jesus and God's invitation is to come into covenant relation with, relationship with him and trust in his covenant and his promises to defeat the enemy in our life. I think one of the reasons that sometimes as Christians we have a hard time understanding the Old Testament is that we sometimes don't understand how did people get saved in the Old Testament. See, sometimes we think people in the Old Testament got saved by doing good works. Like you had to prove to God over and over again by your good works, and then you would become saved. I think we think that a lot of times, but the fact is in the Old Testament, we still see God saving people through grace. We still see God in the Old Testament extending his grace and his mercy to people over and over again to bring them into a relationship with him. We see that especially in Noah. In, in Genesis 6 verse 9, it says, After all, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And so the big question is, how did Noah become righteous? Was this because of the good works that he did? Was it because of the performance that he did? 
you kind of, if you read the end of Noah's life, you're going to know, no, that really didn't have a whole lot to do with Noah's behavior because he made a lot of pretty serious mistakes in his life. So you wonder, where did Noah's righteousness come from? So you back up and you go to, uh, you go to Genesis 6, verse 8, and it shows us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You wonder again, where did that favor come from? See, the word favor means grace. See, God didn't save Noah because he was righteous. Noah became righteous because he received God's offer of salvation. See, the grace always comes first. And the righteousness always follows. That's always the way to righteousness. Is because God first gives you the gift of grace and mercy. So often we think our righteousness needs to come first to prove to God that we're good. And then he'll give us the grace and mercy. But even from the time of Noah that we see, God's grace and God's mercy always come first. And grace and mercy always produce righteousness. See, the relationship with Jesus and the relationship with God always produces the behavior that we're looking for. And of a lack of relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus is going to produce the behavior that we do not want in our life. But it's a relationship that's always going to produce the behavior. So Noah gives God, or God gives Noah the grace to believe, gives him favor in his life, and God's going to use Noah in a pretty courageous way to build an ark. And most of us know the story of the ark, and we know what happens, and uh, he builds the ark, and, and Noah and his family get aboard the ark with all the animals. Then after the, uh, after the flood is over, we see God extends a covenant with Noah and his family. So that's what we're going to pick up today. And I want to read through uh, parts of Genesis 9. This is after the flood. It says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth, Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. 
Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. It would be hard to imagine what life would have been like for Noah and his family after they stepped out of that ark. Here it took years to build that ark, and then they were on the ark probably for about a year's duration from the time the rain started to the time they got out. And finally you're stepping out of the ark and everything is completely different. What was normal to you is all gone. Probably a lot of the vegetation was gone. Probably new trees were growing. Everything is different. Your family, your, a lot of your friends, they're all gone. And life is going to be radically, radically different as you look at all the devastation. I can hardly imagine what that would look like. I remember for eight years we lived in central Florida. So we lived through hurricane season after hurricane season. And I remember after a hurricane, it was one of the most eeriest feelings when you'd finally walk out of your house after being boarded in your house for three days. Most of us would put steel shutters over all of our windows and extra steel uh, rods to hold our garage door in place. And our front door was a steel door with extra bolts to protect it during a hurricane. And when a hurricane would come, usually you'd have 24 hours before the hurricane of tropical storms and it would rain and rain and rain and rain. And you ever wondered, is it ever going to stop? And you'd watch the flood in your road become higher and higher. And the kids would be out on their boogie boards just surfing through the neighborhood on the street. And you're wondering, if this gets a little higher, it's going to be in my house. And finally, when the hurricane does come, you know, you don't go outside anymore. And for sometimes for the next... 18 to 24 hours, you're dealing with a hurricane going over your house and passing over your house and tornadoes. And finally, three or four days later, when it's all over with, you kind of come out. And it's kind of an eerie feeling because you're not sure exactly what's happening outside because all your windows have steel shutters on them. And you get outside and you're finding your tree is turned over, your palm tree's gone. The kids' play structure in the backyard is kind of torn into pieces. Your fence is in the tree. And you're wondering, is life ever going to get back to normal? And you wonder, is there ever going to be a new normal? And after the flood in your street goes away, you get in your car and you start driving around town and recognizing, yeah, that gas station, that roof is gone. And you see some of your neighbors and their house is pretty devastated. And you hear the reports and the news of the people that died or were hurt or injured. And you kind of wonder, what is life going to be like? And I think one of the hardest things for people in Central Florida to deal with is you're always wondering, when is it going to happen again? Because when you live in Central Florida in the summer, you listen to the news very intently. Because there's always tropical storms in the Atlantic Ocean, and any time they could spin into a hurricane, and they could be on the shores of Florida in the next five to seven days. And so after a hurricane, you're always wondering, when is the next one coming? And it's almost a fear that you start to live in because you're so fearful of when is it going to happen again and as you watch the news reports. And I'm wondering if it was the same thing for, for Noah and his family. Kind of you get out of that ark and you're wondering, is this going to happen again? And you're kind of wondering next time it rains, like, is this starting all over again? But this time nobody told us to build an ark. And you're wondering if God is going to destroy you. Because if you look in Genesis 6, verse 5, you see the reason that God sent the flood, it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man, 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. God destroyed the world because he saw the condition of humans' hearts. The heart was wicked, and that's why he destroyed it. And I'm sure Adam or Noah and his family kind of wondered at the flood, after the flood, like, you know what? My heart's still not always very good. Could God come at any time and destroy me because of the condition of my heart? And see, that's where you see the heart of God in the story of Noah. You see the love of God in the, Noah, the story of Noah. You see the love story in the, in, in the, in the story of Noah because God is going to make a covenant with Noah. And I think he does that. One of his reasons is to put him at ease. To say, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear that I'm just waiting to clobber you. See, we read in Genesis 8, verse 21, and I love this verse because I think this is one of the most compassionate verses in the Bible. It said, the Lord said in his heart, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done before. You see what it says in the middle there? It says the human heart is still evil. See, what God's acknowledging there is the flood didn't take care of the condition of the human's heart. The human heart was evil before the flood, and it's evil after the heart. It'd be pretty easy to think that flood's coming back any time to wipe me out because my heart's still evil. But I love what God says in the beginning of the verse. It says, God said in his heart, God said in his heart, no, I want to put my people at ease. I want to give them the confidence to know that I am for them and that I am not against them, that I am for restoration, that I am for wholeness, that I'm not here to destroy them again and again and again, but I want to give them a covenant. And in this covenant, my promise is I'm never going to destroy the whole world again. And do you know what the people's side of the covenant was? Nothing. There was no condition. God says, this is my covenant. This is my word. I'm going to do it. No matter how you respond, I will never destroy the whole world again because of the condition of their heart. See, God knows that the human heart is always sinful, but when you look at the story of Noah, the point of the story of Noah is what God said in his heart. That's the point of Noah. It's God's heart. God is always for you. See, the center of covenants is God's heart. And the center of God's heart is restoration. The covenant with Noah creates this new stage of restoration and redemption that's going to happen in the human race. And you notice in that promise, that the scripture that we read, God says three times, never again will I destroy. Never again, he repeats over and over and over because he wants people to understand that he is not going to destroy it. And then God goes one step further and says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a rainbow. God promised, he said, whenever the rainbow appears in the sky, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. See, we know that God's not going to forget, but God knows that we can forget. And that's why God wants us to see the rainbow and we see him in the sky to constantly remind us 
that God's heart is always for our restoration. See, God doesn't want us to live in fear. God doesn't want us to come to church out of fear that he's just ready to clobber us. God wants us to come to church. He wants us to come into a relationship with him. That's God's heart for the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is that we could come into relationship with him. See, despite our failures, despite our wandering to the border to find happiness, God creates a covenant with Noah. God shows us that no matter what the condition of our heart is, that he is going to come. And he's going to build a bridge with us. But see, that's why our life is always about surrender. Like Noah, we need to receive the free gift of grace that God extended to Noah. We see in the garden, it doesn't work if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's God's invitation to each of us. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that God knows our sinfulness, that he knows our heart, but yet he still chooses us. He chooses us to have a relationship with him. And he holds back the waters of the flood and says, I want you. And that's the beautiful invitation of the gospel, that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by simply surrendering our life to Jesus and saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So, Father, I do thank you for your word. And, God, I thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that, Lord, you extend an invitation to us over and over and over again to follow you. And Lord, I pray if there's any person here today, Lord, that is wondering, like, I want that relationship. I feel like I don't have that relationship with you. And Lord, if you're stirring in their heart today to have that relationship with you, Lord, we thank you for it. And you might be wondering, then, what do I do? What is my first step? You just simply acknowledge to God, yes, you want to follow him. And then you begin to follow him. And then it's important that not only do you just make a decision in your heart, but that you, you connect with other people, that you connect with other followers of Jesus, and that you learn how to follow Jesus and learn all the covenant promises that he has for your life. But your decision to become a Christian is because Jesus is working in your heart, revealing himself to you and to showing you who he is. Because the offer of grace and mercy come first. And we thank you for that. Lord, it's easy for us to forget that you are a God of wholeness and restoration. And we thank you, Lord. That's why you said, I'll give a rainbow to remind you of my love. And so, Lord, we remember that today. And thank you, Lord, that you are a God who always has set a stage for restoration, who always sets a stage for comeback. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for any person here today, Lord, that needs a comeback, that, Lord, you would just minister to them. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that might be discouraged, or seeking some answers that you administer to them in that deep place of their heart where they're just wondering why. That they will leave here today filled with peace. Lord, I pray for anybody here today, Lord, that just needs healing, that you touch them with your healing power. Lord, we bless the rest of this community who's not with us today. Lord, I thank you of Donna and her family, Lord. They're just dealing with so much uh, human loss in their family father-in-law and now extended family, Lord, that you just comfort that family. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this church. And we bless what you're doing. 
And Lord, I thank you for the story that you're creating in each of us. And Lord, help us to leave here today with the confidence, like you said to Isaiah in Isaiah 40, to shout it. Shout that the word of God endures forever.